there was about 15, 18 people that knew about it, knew the seriousness of it, never talked about it, never talked about it. Hey there, my name is Sean, and this is Suicide Noted. On this podcast, I talk with suicide attempt survivors so that we can hear their stories. Every year around the world, millions of people try to take their own lives, and we almost never talk about it. And when we do talk about it, many of us, including me, are not very good at it. So, one of my goals with this podcast is to have more conversations and hopefully better conversations with attempt survivors. A huge, ginormous thanks to all the attempt survivors who have joined me here to talk so openly and candidly since we started in July of 2020. We're coming up on two years, and of course, to everybody who listens. Really, thank you. If you are a suicide attempt survivor and you'd like to talk, please reach out. Hello at SuicideNoted.com, on Facebook or Twitter, at SuicideNoted. And I will put links to a few other things in the show notes, ways in which you could leave us a recorded message and a new community, which we will be launching soon so that suicide attempt survivors have an additional space to get together, to connect and converse and express I'm looking forward to that. I will share more about that with you all soon. Keep in mind, we are talking about suicide on this podcast, as the title suggests. Take that into account before or as you listen. But I do hope you listen, because there is so much to learn. Today, I am talking with Jeff. Jeff lives up in Pennsylvania, and he is a suicide attempt survivor. Hey, Mr. Jeff. So... You reached out to me, which means presumably you heard at least one episode. I'm asking this more and more of late for some reason is how did you stumble upon a podcast that is all about suicide? I have suicide ideation and there's times that I look for things, put things in the internet, Google, and uh, put suicide in there. I'll find different things. And most of them are, you know, call 1-800-HELP. You know, not real direct. It's not real personable. I don't find, you know, and it's difficult because of all the federal regulations trying to do something online that is mental health. I think we breached that over um, COVID, but I look for, I'm big into photography. So I look for photographs that are of down people, particularly like uh, black and white drawings of just people that are feeling sad, and like I mentioned, I'm bipolar. I usually look for that type of thing. And it's weird, but it's only it's kind of like joining a club, which is mm. not a club you want to be in, but <laughs> kind of like uh, joining a club. And when you see things that are people that are bipolar, they've drawn something bipolar, kind of kinship type of thing. Mm-hmm. And uh, that's kind of why you're know, looking at looking for something in suicide and also small area not a lot of people in the area no one really to talk to no one really to uh, bounce ideas off of in a rural area also we're always looking for you know things to 
that are more interesting than things in the local area since we're so rural. So where do you want to start? My, my inclination is always to sort of start with that sort of very direct question of your attempt or attempts. How many are there? Two. Okay. You want to start with sort of the first one and maybe what led up to it? And I know that's a hard question because you could probably go back to three years old. Yeah. I've been a peer support specialist, so I've shared my story a number of times. I was raised with uh, parents that regardless, you do it, you get it done, you do it the best of your ability. Feelings are second, third, fourth. They're not the first thing. And always kind of a lot of pressure with that type of environment, especially my mother. My mother, unfortunately, likes to emasculate men. Mm. That's not a good thing for a little kid to grow up with. It was, I was about 12. With that, it was something that it's also, it's, it's an old pill that was used for back pain. Um, it was called Doan's Pills. It's basically like acetaminophen. It's basically like a uh, Tylenol. Um, so my parents weren't home at that point, which they were hardly ever home. And I took maybe 10, 15, somewhere in that area. And it was a weak attempt, but it really was kind of an attempt. And I think it was more for calling out for help, wanting help than um, someone, you know, doing away with my, doing away with my life. And I think that's something that we miss with uh, people that have tried to commit suicide, that they're reaching out, they're, they're hurting. They're saying, Mm -hmm. I hurt so bad that I'm willing to take my life. So it's something that getting attention, finding people that are going to work with you and help with you, people you're going to match with. I've worked with a number of different therapists, seven, eight, 10, something like that. Some you get to know, others you don't, but it's still not the same kindred spirits that you have when you have someone that has done or gone through the same types of things that you have gone through. And when you're 12 in rural Pennsylvania, with parents who aren't home and don't like to talk about feelings, I'm going to say, I'm going to guess, tell me if I'm wrong, you didn't go to anybody with your pain. There was no one to go to. It was not as if I I had two older sisters. They weren't in the house much because they didn't want to be in the house. So there really wasn't anybody in my neighborhood. And also, I find a lot of people like myself were great actors. Once we are around someone that we could possibly talk to, we just, oh, I'm fine. I am fine. I don't have any type of problems. You know, things are great. And in the back of your mind, you are thinking about, okay, a noose or drug, hurting myself today or not. So it's that putting that out there saying, you know, just putting that facade, I'm fine. No problems. I don't need to go to anybody. I know my parents wouldn't have taken me anybody anywhere or given me any type of medication because that was the time back in the 70s, you are labeling someone. If I was labeled depression, clinical depression, or if I was labeled bipolar that lives with you throughout your education, particularly um, basic school, and my parents were all about, you know, no type of other look into uh, what goes on with our family, basically. Mm. You know, that label was very big in the 70s, early 80s. ADHD was just being named around that time period. 
And with ADHD, put a label on a student, put a student in special classes. Mm -hmm. So that student now, his life or her life has been somewhat determined for them because they're getting put in another area, even though they have all the capacity to do everything. But mm -hmm. they got a label on them. And as far as getting that label off, just doesn't happen. Right. 12 years old. This is maybe a question that you, you most people could not answer. Do you know the reason behind your attempt? Loneliness. Mm -hmm. It was kind of a more of a call out for help, but mm -hmm. it was something that it was just like, I want to stop, you know, feeling bad. I always compared myself to other people. Everybody was better than me. Grass is greener on the other side. That's that's me to a T, but it is something that uh, calling out for help and then also thinking about what if I do? What if this does actually work? Because if medications aren't always going to be something that works. A gun works. A noose works. That's part of the reason why more men actually commit suicide. Guns. They yep. use guns and it's much higher. 25, 30% more actually get through and complete uh, suicide because of the guns. Right. Guns are very lethal. You're, in your case, with the pills... What happened that night? Do you remember? You took the pills. Do you remember what happened after? After taking the pills, for some reason, I was laying on the floor in my kitchen. My parents weren't home. My dog was home. We were, that was probably my best friend. I just, you know, felt okay. Felt kind of dizzy. Felt kind of not really all that bad, but just felt dizzy and stuff. And I just went to bed. And I didn't know as far as if I was going to wake up or not kind of waking up was kind of that no not again i'm still going to be going through the motions i'm still going to have to fake everything that i'm fine and nothing's uh, bad with me or wrong with me it wasn't a fun experience whatsoever and around that time my uh, sister's um boyfriend committed suicide and it was the after the wedding of his brother mm. So that, uh, that was very devastating for both, for many families. Sure. And so, and does anybody find out about what you did that night? No. Okay. No. This is probably one of the first times I've talked about it. It's kind of hidden there. Like I said, I pretty much am a good actor. Just kind of left it there. It happened, moved forward. But no, I've never really told anybody about it. And And what happens in the ensuing or the following weeks and months and even years, do you continue to sort of struggle in the same way? Yes. Yes. Mm -hmm. I always say, and I don't want to offend anybody, but I know why the um, star quarterback committed suicide in high school. The reason is I know how people have different issues with mental illness. Mm -hmm. It might be gender at that high school level, there's all these different things coming together. There's individuals that have some real difficulties, some real uh, pressure on them. Even though the appearance is they're great, they're fine, everything looks good, they're getting good grades. So why bother them? Why talk to them about mental health? Because they appear to be just fine, you know, like star quarterback, um, 
they play sports, do well academically, mm -hmm. but there is something in the back there, whether it is a mental illness or it's just that extreme sadness that we, uh, you know, don't talk about, especially with the people that are way up there doing very well, you know, comparatively. Um, so that's something that I say, I don't want to make anybody upset, but it's an example of someone that is achieving, doing very well, but in the back of their mind, they are really struggling every day to get up. They get up and they go through the process. That's basically what I did up through. Oh, it wasn't until I was 24 that I started on any type of medication um, and counseling at that point. And that was due to my wife and being married and a child. Um, so that's what got me to medication and counseling because it was a different time, different responsibilities that come into play. You know, you're a 14, 15, 16 year old or 16 year old, you're worried about gas money and doing well with grades. When you become married and you have a wife and a two year old, all changes and mm -hmm. all that stuff changes. And that's where some people will talk about individuals being selfish, being selfish when they commit suicide, uh, try to commit suicide, that look at your family, look at everything that you have. Why would you want to commit suicide? Well, there's a number of different reasons. You had, you had your attempt. It sounds like you're ideating. However, you're defining that word somewhat regularly throughout your childhood, teen years and beyond. I'm sort of summarizing here, but it helps me sort of connect the dots. You had a few people, at least two people, it sounds like, in your life that you at least knew who committed suicide or mm -hmm. I should say completed suicide. People don't like when I use the word commit. That's fair. And then you're 24, you're married, you have a kid, you start to get treatment, help, meds, diagnoses. Yes. I was first diagnosed as far as clinical depression, mm -hmm. and I was put on Prozac. And it was like the sun started shining. It really was something that was worked for me well. It worked for me well for about a year to two years. And that's not unusual that you have to change from to another antidepressant. I didn't. I just kept taking the same thing every morning. So mm -hmm. it looked like I was fine. Taking, you know, my wife is a nurse. So taking the medication all the time, she would check on that. It wasn't working, but I was still taking the medication. And then when do you attempt again? In my 30s, I have long spans. Uh, it's probably when I was uh, about 35, 36, maybe 40, something in there. And how old are you now, may I ask? 53. Oh, you look young. The, the listeners will not know that, but I am, from my point of view, thinking I thought you were younger. So some 15 or so years ago, you had, I, I'm not going to tell you what your life was like, but you were alive. You're married. You're a father. One child, more than one. Three kids. You're doing what you got to do. And so I know we're trying to sort of take many years into a very short period of time here as we talk. I know it's challenging. Any idea what changed in your life that led you to your second attempt in your late 30s? Definitely as far as the pressure of family, you know, wife and three kids, you know, my wife didn't work. So I was the breadwinner. And if I did something to lose my job, I'd be, you know, dire straits type of thing. 
And I also, as far as I'm a recovering alcoholic. So at that point in time, I was drinking like a fish. I mentioned uh, as far as going through college, I drank myself through college. I do not know how I completed college. But then it, uh, I'm a musician, have been in bands. Bands usually mean drugs and alcohol, stuff like that with rock bands and stuff. So I really got to be an alcoholic in my mid-30s, and that continued till my second attempt. Alcoholism played a part in uh, the suicide attempt. Right. One of the questions I often ask is, how are you coping, right? How are you dealing with life? So it sounds like for you, for quite some time, one of the things that you used to cope was, was booze. Yeah, it makes sense to me. I mean, I get it. I know that there are some typically some not very good consequences, but in the moment you feel better. Mm -hmm. Why else would you do it? Yeah. You know, I I don't like to get, I actually, I do like to get granular. Um, So if this is too much, you'll tell me, you know, you're in your late thirties, you're drinking. Obviously it sounds like there's just things are mounting. Pressure is mounting. What changes so that whatever with that particular day and not the day before this is the day that day i'm bipolar like i said i had not slept really slept for about two weeks i was manic and manic is not fun some people oh it looks like it'd be fun no 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 it's horrible i was manic and had not slept for a like i said about two weeks wow. so my thought process is all over the board and it's just like i've been i was self hurting and harming so at that point in time i just grabbed uh, the bottle of valium that i had why do you give a uh, an alcoholic valium i don't know but um i just grabbed the bottle and i just basically chugged down about 25 valium uh at once um and i then i just went and laid on the couch expecting, you know, things to go dark, things to go, you know, slide out, kind of slide out of this world type of thing. But unfortunately, I was manic, one, uh, manic will kick 20, 25 uh, Valium right away. Plus, I had been on Valium for two years, so it wasn't really working all that well. But if you take 25, 30 pills, it's usually going to do something. About 12.30, I was still not feeling anything. I did it about 10 or 11.30. And I told my wife what I had done. So then all of a sudden, the um, ambulance is there. Fire rescue people are there. I have three kids that are in bed. And I did this. So now I start to feel guilty that all this commotion is coming in, that kids shouldn't, shouldn't have to see as far as something like that happening to a parent, that the parent did it to themselves. So fire rescue came in, ambulance crew came in. So they got the uh, blood pressure cuff on me doing all these different tests. I'm not really all that bad. I'm just really kind of spaced out at that point in time. I know what's going on, but it's almost like disassociative where a person's kind of out looking in. My brain had things happen to it. My body did not. It really did not change. They are ready for me to fall over, you know, at any point in time. You know, they wanted to get me in the ambulance and get me to the um, ER as soon as possible. But 
I never lost consciousness, unfortunately. It just was something that uh, mania. Also, I found out medically, there's times that you can overtake medication and then it won't work. Mm -hmm. Valium is one of those medications. You can take three, four, five milligrams and that'll really hit you. You can take 20, it doesn't work because it's too much. Some of the chemicals, they're too much of one of the chemicals that you're taking. So it doesn't work, but it's, it's pretty interesting. Like I said, I worked in peer support um, at the Behavioral Health Center. I found that out when we were working with some patients that we did have to give the shot of Adder, um, uh, Valium or Xanax or whatever and put them down and make them safe. I kind of learned a little bit. I read a lot online. It's probably bad to do, but I do read a lot online as far as um, different types of medications a lot. I'm very, very interested in what they're doing now as far as fMRIs, where they're actually having the person doing an MRI and then they have the person look at sad pictures. One part of the brain will light up. Then they have music and another part of the brain will light up. Fascinating. I think that's really cool stuff to watch. Mm. Near-death experiences. I have a big habit of watching near-death experiences a lot. Okay. Interesting. So did you go to the hospital that night? Yes. You stay there? Yes. How long? Probably seven or eight days in the behavioral health unit. So they have you there. You're safe. They're checking your meds. They do all that stuff, right? When you get out, anything change? My medications were changed and I started going to AA. And that's probably one of the biggest things that has changed my life is going to AA. Um, Medications do not work when you're drinking alcohol. Going to AA is something that has just, like I said, changed my life. Medications working. And if they're not, I'm not going off the deep end because they're working a little bit, but alcohol is not involved. You know, I'm one of those people that sings the praises of AA. Great organization. I'm going to ask you a question that might be a little sensitive, so I'm going to frame it carefully here, because I want people to understand what kind of pain leads people to attempt to take their life. You're a a husband and a dad of three children. And so I'm thinking about that particular night, and I promise you 100%, there's no judgment. I imagine there's conflict. Part of you, I want out. I'm in pain. Another part of you, though, you're a dad. You're a husband. That's got to be a very tricky spot to be in. The thing that I always look at is probably the way I was brought up. Would my wife and with the kids be financially sound? Right. You know, because then I could just be out of the picture and my wife and the three kids, they'd be able to eat. They'd have food, house, uh, house, computers. They'd have all that stuff if they were financially stable. Um, And we were getting to that point, but my brain was just not good, very mixed up. There's what's called dysphoric mania. And that is is the worst. That's where you put depression and put mania together. Mm. So when you put that mania into depression, it is, and that's where really people, that's an extremely difficult place to be. Yeah. How many people, you said that almost nobody knows about the first attempt back when you were 12. You didn't talk about it much. Who in your life knows about the one, the second attempt? 
course, my wife and kids, my parents, her parents, and um, sisters. Um, I don't think the neighbors, like it was late. It was, they probably got there at one o'clock. They didn't have the siren on. Um, they had the lights flashing, but they didn't have the siren on. So they were weren't waking up the whole neighborhood. None of that really happened. But there was about 15, 18 people um, that knew about it, knew the seriousness of it, never talked about it, never talked about it. Mm. Would, did, would you have been open to talking about it? Probably a month to two months afterwards. It was too raw, you know, right afterwards, really too raw. But and also who you're talking to can make a difference. Mm. I'm talking to a friend, I can say, you know, I'd be much more open than if I'm talking to my parents. So really opening up, it really was not talked about. And I've been hospitalized seven times. And I had mentioned that over those seven times, I never have gotten a card balloons or flowers and that is very common for all the people in behavioral health centers you don't talk about it you don't send a card you just you know oh they're they're in the hospital but that's it and i work at a university with uh 650 employees so there's a lot of people around seven seven different hospital visits yes behavioral health mental health yes what was the longest stay Oh, it would have been, um, I went through ECT, hmm. the electroconvulsive therapy. Um, so that would have been the longest. That was probably a month. Did that help? It helped to a point. What I didn't like, and it is, some people have it, is the fogginess afterwards. Hmm. And also some people have to have it relatively frequently um, because I was around other people having the uh, treatment. Some of them would be their second, third round of um, ECT. Um, and I didn't want to do that after the uh, first one. I just felt too foggy and uh, it doesn't hurt, you know, and it does work at times, but too foggy afterwards, you know, if you're forgetting things and that's very common. It does go away a little bit, but you still, I'm still foggy from it. And that was 10 years ago. Of the seven uh, visits to the hospital or stays at the hospital, how many were voluntary? All of them. Uh-huh. I've never uh-huh. done a 302. In Pennsylvania, 302 is a required 72 hours where you're signed in. You can't get out 72 hours. You have to be seen by a physician. You know, that's Pennsylvania's uh, 302 as far as three days, automatic. You can't do anything. It's a legal proceeding that you are there. Um, that's just how Pennsylvania works. And then a 303. You know, 10 days, and it just continues to go up, but uh, no 302s. So all the, so these, so that's indicative of somebody who's got, despite all the mental health challenges, bipolar, anxiety, and stress, like you're aware enough to take yourself to the hospital. I know as far as when I need to go. There's times that, um, oh, it's my wife and myself. Sometimes it's her saying, you're not really doing well. Um, you may not see it, but she sees it. You know, this might be something that you want to do. Most of the time, it is due to depression. Um, where I haven't been, I don't get out of bed or really do anything for weeks at a time. Um, most of them have been for depression. Um, like I mentioned, the ECT was specifically for a treatment, so it wasn't necessarily a mental health visit. 
It was more for a specific type of treatment. So you just mentioned that sometimes when it hits hard, you're in bed for long stretches. How are you able to, among other things, keep your job when that happens? I work in the field of education. I work in at a university. Of a university, at least I feel that some of the people are more open to as far as, you know, we have psychology faculty members. We have people that have their PhDs in psychology and behavioral health in different areas. Um, so that helps. But working at a university, being able to do the family medical leave, I always sign up for that. Those things have really helped. I've been with the university for 30 years. When things were going on, I had 15, 18 years in. So it was also something that I've been around. They wanted me back, I guess. Mm. Being at a university, being in education really helped. If I was an on-the-road salesman, I would have lost my house. Right. So it sounds like you've had the same job and the same wife for a few decades. Yes. I've been here for 30 years, but I've had all different types of jobs within that 30-year time span. That's kept it more active and more interesting. Mm. I just find it fascinating that with the struggles and the alcohol and the bipolar, which is so fucking hard, you've found a way to maintain a family, a job, career. Um, that's that's a real that's a got some good stuff, man. And I'm not. I hope I don't sound like I'm pandering because I know there are many a person out there with mental health diagnoses who accomplish phenomenal things, right? Phenomenal things. I mean. It's still, I'm, I'm always like, oh, wow, good for them, man. Good for them. Um, does your wife know that you're talking to me? No, she does not. Is she going to hear this? Probably not. She's not oh. a big uh, podcast or even computer person. So it's probably not something she's going to listen to or like know that I did it. There's one person probably that I'll let know and that's it. Friend? Yep. Your kids know about your attempt. Yes. And you'd said a bunch of other people know, family, family related. They don't talk about it. Does anybody ever bring it up just out of curiosity? No. Oh, no. Hmm. Never. That's never brought up. Never. It's not a holiday discussion. And no one ever has taken me aside and said, what? Why were you, you know, like a sister, a parent? No. Hmm. So you have a college friend that might, that might hear this. Um, and I know you have, if you don't currently, you've been involved with peer support. I always ask this question. I'm always curious, how many people in your life do you have to talk to? And to be clear about that, I don't necessarily mean that you're considering ending your life. More like just shitty day, tough stretch. There, there's probably two people. Um, one is a faculty member here. And then the other person is the college friend um, that we keep in touch you know, weekly that we're talking about different stuff. And he's had his challenges also. He's going through a divorce. He's got, you know, different challenges. So we kind of mesh real well together in our sorrow, I guess. 100%. Also a Penguins fan, I assume. Yes. Big Penguins fan. NHL ice hockey team, if you're hearing this and you don't know what that is, particularly if you're not from the United States. Uh, A few more questions I have, Jeff, and then I'll sort of open it up and you want to add anything else, any other treatments other than or in addition to ECT? Counseling, different types of counseling, whether it was just talk therapy or CBT, that really has been the other side without medication um, would be, and I've had a number of therapists and things like that, which makes it kind of difficult. 
And however you define the word ideate, how often these days do you ideate? I'd say probably once a day, each day. Um, I'm not doing real well at this point, but I'm pushing through and I have an appointment with my psychiatrist, I think, next week. So You're 53. You think you're going to make it to 60? A couple of reasons. No. Some of the medication that you take takes years off of a person with mental illness, particularly bipolar. Some of the medication will take off a couple of years. Mm. Um, bipolars have, what is it, three to 10 years shorter lifespan than the normal person which is kind of, you know, and that's where I'm kind of getting that from. And I don't know, you know, the next couple of years, my kids are out of the house. Um, I'm really struggling with not drinking. Um, In Pennsylvania, we now have put um, beer into 7-Elevens and stuff like that. All over the United States, you could go in and get a case of beer at your Quickie Mart. Pennsylvania until last year, you couldn't do that. You had to go to a distributor or for hard alcohol, a wine and spirit store. So last year they changed that. And now any type of quickie mark can have beer in there. Mm. So every time I go in to get coffee, there's a beer cave, which is kind of brutal. Yeah, man. I wonder if you'll see a little bit of a spike or more than a little in alcohol related incidents, driving family abuse, even suicide possible. Yeah. Too much alcohol. Uh, So many things in the uh, newspaper, alcohol and drugs are involved somewhere, especially uh, domestic uh, issues. There's a lot of that happening. But hey, Jeff, it's cool. At least a a handful of people get really fucking rich. Yeah, that's what it will be. I know that you said that you sometimes search around uh, for suicide or suicide related stuff, not necessarily this podcast or podcast, but it came up. Do you remember why it was that you reached out and chose to share this? And, you know, because look, most people, they don't do this. They don't share. They don't talk about it, right? We know that. One, kind of to say the people that are listening or have spoken as far as it's trite, but there is help available. There is help that people will listen to you. If you have to find the right people, unfortunately, and there are resources in different communities, but that is something that there are people out there that have gone through what you've done or have thought about to help individuals. Um, right now, we have as far as more mental health workers going to calls, police calls, which I think is fabulous. Mm-hmm. And also, one of the older, I think I might be one of the older people that uh, you've interviewed. So I want to kind of put the grandpa spin on it. <laughs> we've had a few, we've had a few that are older, um, maybe by and large. Yeah. In general, it's a little, maybe skews a little younger, but uh, that's probably not because there are any more people who attempt. They're just probably more aware of podcasts and technology yeah, and stuff. True, I don't know. Maybe. So I think maybe, Younger generations might be a little more open about it than older ones, too. I see millennials really much more concerned about their health and more willing to go out out and get help when they need it. A few things came up during our conversation that sort of hint at myths that you might think are out there relating to 
mental illness or suicidality or perhaps alcohol addiction. Uh, and is there any in particular that you want to discuss that you think are bullshit? The uh, myth that the person's being selfish, really, that's even, that's pouring gas on a fire when you're starting to talk about, you know, you shouldn't have done that. You have three or four kids to take care of. You know, why would you even think that way? So that's something that's difficult in that particular area where um, people being weak and also that people that commit, commit or ideate all that type of thing, they're not mentally ill monsters because some people will think, oh, that person wanted to commit suicide. They tried. They're out there. They are some type of mental illness is going on with them. I don't want to be around them. And that you get isolated. That also is something that does happen is individuals get isolated. High school students really have a problem with that as far as isolation, if they've done a uh, some type of uh, suicide attempt. Selfish one comes up so often on this podcast, Jeff. And I think it's really interesting. I don't know if that's the best word. I think you're right. I think people look at people who try to end their lives as monsters. And I think that's a shitty thing to think, but it's just easy. It's easy. You're a monster or fill another not very nice word. And, and guess what? We don't have to do if that's the case. I don't really have to talk to you about it because I kind of know that's what you are. That's true. I never thought of that. That's really true. I don't have to engage you in a conversation. I don't have to really listen. I just got it all figured out. Makes sense yeah. to me. You did that and this is what you are. Yeah, that makes sense. Totally. You are not one of those people, fortunately. It makes sense because you've lived through it. And people who have lived through it tend to be the best uh, ambassadors, so to speak, of the truth around this stuff. So I appreciate it. But I'm glad we connected. I'm glad that we're talking. Thank you again. Be well. Uh, and, uh, and we'll connect soon, man. All right. Thank you very much. All right, take care, Jeff. Bye. As always, thanks so much for listening and all of your support. And special thanks to Jeff up in Pennsylvania. Thank you, Jeff. If you are a suicide attempt survivor and you'd like to talk, please reach out. Hello at SuicideNoted.com, Facebook or Twitter at SuicideNoted. And I will put links to other things we are working on, projects you may want to participate in. Check it out in the show notes as always. And that is all for episode number 112. Stay strong. Do the best you can. I'll talk to you soon.